Hey, this is Dan Kidder with the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah podcast. And this interview with Mark Mumford is brought to you by Cedar City Politics and the Southern Utah Citizens for Ethical Government. Um, today, we are continuing our series of interviews. We just had uh, Sarah Ridgel just left a little while ago. We had Robert Cox in here this morning. And interviews with uh, Tyler Melling and Kathy Long and Carter Wilkie are already up on the Cedar City Politics Facebook page and the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah Facebook group. These uh, interviews that we've done today will go up tomorrow. And I also have in the studio tomorrow, Brittany Fisher will be in and that will finish up all of the candidates. We got them all to come into the studio. So I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. Um, for those, and, and I apologize for those who've already watched this, you know, a dozen times, but I'm going to do it every video. So for those who are unaware, the Cedar City Council race is a little bit different than some of the normal races that you're used to in that when you run for county commission, you have seat A, seat B, seat C. Same with school board, you have, you know, District 1, District 2, District 3. This is kind of an episode of Survivor. So we have three seats that are available. Uh, two of them are being vacated by the current council members. Terry Hartley and Craig Isom are not running for re-election. And the third one is Tyler Melling's seat, and he is running for re-election. So those three seats are up in the air, and there are seven candidates right now. We had eight. One dropped out. Mary Pearson dropped out. So if you had senior signs and were planning on voting for her, she's no longer a candidate. Um, so that leaves seven, which is one more than six. And that means we have to have a, uh, a primary in September. And it's not like a typical primary that's sponsored by the Republicans or the Democrats because the council seats are nonpartisan. So it will just be a general primary, which sounds kind of odd, general election, primary election, but it's a primary. And the, the top six vote getters in that primary will move on to the general election in November. And the top three vote getters in that election will become members of the Cedar City Council. So it's, it's a little bit like an episode of Survivor. It's different than, than some of the races that you're used to. So that's kind of the, the ballpark that we're playing in and, and the playing field. So with me today in the studio, I have Mark Mumford. And Mark, you're going to tell us just a little bit about yourself and why people should uh, vote for you, you know, what your issues are, what you're, you're concerned with, your history, your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, um, I grew up in Idaho. Uh, I was born in Boise and lived there until I was four. Then we, my family moved out to a town called Cuna, about 20 miles southwest of there. Um, we lived out south of town in the county, so I was just, I grew up surrounded by fields. Um, which was a lot of fun and my dad was a mechanic but he liked to hobby farm and so we grew a huge garden we had um, we had a, we had steers so, so we had our own meat uh, we had uh, chickens for eggs and my sisters did uh, 4-H so we had pigs for a little while and and we also raised turkeys um, it was it was kind of idyllic in a way um, we you know living out in the country um, for a long time, we didn't even have trash service, so we put our trash in a barrel and burned it, um, which was which was interesting. Um, so, and, and I, I grew up uh, around firearms. I mean, you you've got guns when you live out in the country because sometimes you need to shoot animals. Um, so that, there was that as well. Um, but we lived close enough to Boise that we could go shopping there, and and uh, and it, it, it had access to things like the Boise State University and the things that were available there. Um, so I uh, 
I mean, how detailed do you want me to get? Well, just give us, if, if I'm voting for you, I want to know a little bit about you. So tell yeah. me about that. So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I grew up in the church, and uh, I've, I'm, I'm an Eagle Scout, so I was a Boy Scout. I, I was heavily involved in scouting, um, served on a, the staff of a leadership training camp, and went on a few different 50-mile uh, canoe trips, 50-mile hike, um, things like that. Um, I, uh, I, in, in high school, I sang in choirs. Um, so I, I had uh, I took uh, I had eight years of piano lessons and then four years of private voice lessons. Uh, I got a, a singing scholarship at Boise State University and sang in their in their Meister Singers Choir. Uh, I went on my mission to Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Boston Mission. Oh, you went right to the devil's lair right there. <laughs> I went to seminary in Massachusetts. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was a good place and and really interesting. I mean, I always thought of back east as being a as being just extremely urban, you know, that it was just all city, but it's not that way at all. There's uh, most of Massachusetts is quite rural, yeah. And I, I, most of my areas, we we had cars. <clears throat> um, so um, yeah, so I came back from my mission and transferred to BYU, um, and uh, I was a history major before and after. And then after about a year and a half at BYU, I decided I, I didn't want to have history as a major, so I switched to German. I like my German classes. I like the faculty. Since I hadn't served a German-speaking mission, I needed to do a German foreign language residency. So I, um, I went to Germany and worked on a farm for three and a half months. Oh goodness! Since I was from Ida, so I was, I was a German farmhand, and the, the family that hosted me was was really wonderful. They, I lived on the farm. You know, it was I, I I ate with them, and they took me on vacation with them, and I had a, a wonderful time. Did a lot of hard work, but it, it was good. Um, <clears throat> I had some interesting jobs in college. I was uh, I, I was an EFY counselor in a program called Boys World of Adventure. So for the younger boys, got to do all of the you know the, the regional sessions. But went to a few different places. Um, I also uh, one of the last jobs I had was whitewater rafting guide. Oh, fun! I did that in Alaska. Had some really quite harrowing experiences. Oh, I bet. Yeah, that's grizzly country. Yeah. So what do you do for a living now? Um, so yeah, I graduated from college in two thousand, and um, anyway. I, uh, yeah, so I, I actually work for Iron County School District in the technology department. Okay. So it took me a little ways to get there from, from German. Um, I'm, I'm self-taught mainly in technology, um, and I, I work in the, in the, in the office. So I, okay. I used to go out to the schools. I was a teacher originally, um, but I, um, I just work in the office now. I'm, I'm the leader of the student data systems team, so I, I work with data and servers and things like that. So what did you teach? Taught German. Oh, did you? okay. Yeah. And for almost eight and a half years, I also taught uh, financial literacy for about three years, and then, and then ESL as well. And I was the ESL coordinator for the last little bit. Wow, uh, financial literacy is a subject that is much in need for for everybody. I mean, I wish I had been taught more um, when I was in school. Yeah, it, it was great. It was the when I was teaching it, it was actually new, so we had to kind of come up with the curriculum and figure out how to do it and it was me and one other teacher we luckily we had a, a textbook that we could we could use too but it was uh, it was interesting i ended up doing a lot of uh, a lot of stuff with groups so i'd have the students research the topic and then teach the class and and try to do it interactively and things like that so you've run for city council a few times before uh just once just once 2021 um yeah okay years ago yeah. all right and did you learn any any uh, lessons in that race that informing you in in this race 
Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, like things like have a website, have things you can pass out, stuff like that. Um, I, I, I think the biggest thing I learned is that it's really not that hard. Um, you just show up to stuff and, you know, have something to say, and it's really not that difficult. I, there are a lot of people who could do it, um, but they don't realize they could do it. Right. The job itself has got some intricacies to it because people have asked me over the years, why don't you run? And I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the, especially the zoning stuff and the, you know, the uh -huh. development stuff. And yeah, that, that's true. Um, and I, I know that because when I, when I ran last time, I, I got to know uh, one of the other candidates and he, he recommended me um, to the mayor uh, to be a member of the, the Board of Adjustments. Okay. And so I've served on the Board of Adjustments for about a year and a half now. And I've really enjoyed it. Um, the Board of Adjustments has um, it, it has certain questions that have to be answered before it can grant either variances or home occupations, which are like for home businesses and things like that. Um, but the the details as far as like where, whether you can grant in particular a variance are um, are really quite complicated. And uh, so we, we have the, the assistant city attorney is there with us as well as the head of the building department. And so they help us to understand all of those things. So I, I have experienced some of that. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, it's, it's fascinating because there are times when, you know, you, you come into a situation and think, oh, I kind of think I know how this will turn out. And an hour and a half later, it's gone the other way. Yeah. And you just didn't, you didn't see it coming. Um, and, and a lot of times people walk away disappointed because they wanted something, but we just couldn't give it to them. We didn't have the legal authority to to give them what they wanted one of the biggest things i hear from people all the time is is trying to build develop in cedar city it's not the friendliest environment to assist people through that process it's very um there's a lot of barriers to entry that seem to be put up by the the city government and all the regulations and hoops and, and red tape do you think as a member of the city council that you could help push toward being more customer service oriented in those areas what what ways would you try to uh, to help those people i would like to do that because that, that's a major issue the cost of housing is is terrible and it, it when the cost of housing goes up it hurts the rest of the economy. All of, all of their businesses suffer because people are paying so much money to the bank to pay for their mortgage or to or for rent, and and so it, it's really hard. Um, and the, the, it's a good question. What would I do? I don't know exactly, but I, I it's the it's why why is it so hard to build? And I think there are a number of issues. It's it's city ordinances. There are some of those. Um, and I, I like I like the way you say customer service oriented. That that's really good because because sometimes it really is just that it's it's just um, you know people not knowing how to do things. Like for example, like um, I've often thought that it would behoove government to make it easier to start businesses. Like if if you provided people with just a basic list of things they have to do to start a business, you know, instead of requiring them to go to business school. To learn those things, you know, obviously you're not gonna you're gonna give them all the information, yeah. but just something to say. You know, if somebody needs a job, they want to start a business. How do they do it? Well, being an IT guy, you know what a good website looks like, and finding anything on the city's website is absolutely dismal, man. It is horrible. They just got minutes of meetings so they're searchable. They used to they used to type something up, print it out, scan it in as a flat copy, 
and post it on the website. You couldn't search anything. So uh, that was something that drove me crazy forever. They just got all of that searchable so you can go back and look at minutes and, and records of different meetings. But finding any of those regulations, finding any of the, the information you need, it's just, it's really not intuitive. Yeah, there, there's definitely some improvement that can be made there. And, and website search, like the inter- you click the search thing or whatever, that's historically, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, you've got sites that would even time out if uh, you put a search term in and it took too long because there were too many hits, it would just break. Um, that's, yeah, that's true. It's, it needs to be more user-friendly because it's our government. I mean, it should be. We, we need to make it easier to do things. Another issue in that area is also water. Um, I, you know, we, we, I, I was uh, back in two years ago. I was in the council meetings when they talked about um, the the issue of the city switching over from acquiring water rights um, and then get and then selling them to developers versus the developers having to get them themselves. Right. Um, and and there was uh, there was a number of people who really didn't like that. I mean, it was they were doing switching it to the way that that, that Enoch does it or did it then. Um, but the thing, the thing about it is, though, that like it's easy, a lot easier for large corporations, these big building companies, to come in and, and do that. To they've got the capital and they've got the the credibility with with banks to be able to borrow the money to acquire water rights. I worry about the smaller developers. Well, and it seems that that other issue we're talking about with the regulatory burdens and the difficulty, the big companies have lawyers. They have people working for them who do this all the time. But you know, if I want to go out and build a house or a duplex or a fourplex or it, it there's no way it's just not going to happen and it's the same with the water you know I, I don't have the resources to go out and do that or pay through the teeth and pay all the impact fees and build a park and build the roads and everything else that you know you usually think of cities doing uh-huh. we depend on developers to doing Mm. And a lot of that infrastructure, uh, as we grow, we're at 12% growth right now. Our master plan was designed for 3% growth. Oh. And so we're at 12% growth, and we've got, I mean, you, you drive on Main Street, you can't make a left-hand turn anywhere without a, a red light. And there are pieces of roads that don't connect that would sort of form a loop around the city, and the city's master uh, transportation plan has that all coming together, but we rely on the developers to buy in those areas, develop those roads, and put them in. So it kind of becomes a piecemeal jigsaw puzzle of of completed roads. Do you think that's the approach to continue, or would you look at different ways of getting that infrastructure built to kind of take the burden off downtown? That is a good question. I mean, we've a lot of times we've had developers, or not developers, but property owners come to us and say, you know, I just pulled a, a building permit and now it's, I'm required to put in a sidewalk and, and you know, gutter and everything. And uh, and we, we've, as the board of adjustments, we've sort of been left with this idea that, you know, city council wants it to be this way. Right. That, you know, it's supposed to happen in a piecemeal sort of way. I don't know. It seems like planning execution might ought to be a little more um organized um <laughs> than it is yeah um so yeah that's a, that's a really good question um hmm i don't know that that's yeah it really it really could be done better it, the thing is if you're going to plan it you might as well do it well and, and plan for a way to build it and pay for it as well right right Not just this is what we want to see here but we're going to have somebody else 
uh-huh. build it and do it. Yeah. So yeah, the, and the city has the means to do it. I mean, if it really wants a certain area to be a certain way, it could go ahead and build it like that ahead of time. Yeah. And maybe that's naive of me. I don't know, but. Well, and I'm sure there are reasons for you know the way things are, and, and obviously nobody wants to pay more in taxes. Yeah. Um, speaking of taxes, we have coming up uh, in this election the Recreation, Arts, and Parks tax will be on the ballot mm-hmm. for the voters to decide if they want to reauthorize it. Ah. And this last Saturday, uh, one of the recipients of those funds held a drag show for children at the Johnson Center. Um, what do you think? Should the, the RAP tax continue? And should it be authorized? And do you think that's an appropriate use of those funds? Um, I like the RAP tax because I think it helps the community to be a community. Um, arts and parks, recreation, those are all, those are all important things. Um, so, you know, what it's used for is another question. Um, but um, I think those are, those are good things. It, it would be really hard to have a city without parks and recreation. Um, you know, green spaces are really important. I mean, the, the city of New York, New York, put in Central Park for a reason a long, long yeah. time ago because they knew that the city would, even back then, it would would not be a very livable, livable place. Well, it was tenements. Uh, it was tenement cities at the time too. So yeah. I think they wanted to clear a little bit of that out as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, Slaughterhouses, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty rough area. Um, so I, I think cities need green spaces. They need recreation, particularly for people who live in, um, in more dense housing. If they don't have a lawn of their own, they, they really need somewhere to be able to go and, and recreate. And a lot of people don't, don't want to have a lawn. I, I had, uh, we lived out in, uh, in Three Peaks for, for three years, out in the Three Peaks neighborhood out in the county. And we had neighbors across the street who who uh, were really into sports, but they didn't like taking care of a lawn. Yeah. And, and so eventually they moved back into town and, and near a park, and, and that's, what they, that's what they did. But there's all, all kinds of different uh, interests and preferences people have. When I moved here 18 years ago from the Washington, D.C. area, I sold my lawnmower. And I've never owned one since, and I never want to own one again. Uh, and I have a naturescape in my backyard. And oh, it's, nice. I pretty much I don't do anything. Uh, yeah. It's walled. You uh-huh. can't see it. Just me, and I feel like I'm up on the mountain, you know, watching the sunset up the canyon. That's um, awesome. But, I, yeah, I get that, not wanting to – I hate working in the yard. Mm. Uh, so one of the answers to that was something that Tyler, Tyler Melling worked on very, very heavily was the neighborhood uh, zones. And we haven't had any built yet, but it gave the ability, instead of having this giant lot with this giant house on it, you could – build something smaller on a smaller lot provided you had certain covenants and and met certain uh, criteria Um, and his answer his reasoning for that was one the people who didn't want to take care of that big large you know maybe they're older Mm -hmm. maybe they don't need that much space Um, but also we have a problem in our community right now where kids who are growing up in this community can't afford to stay here mm. because the job opportunities aren't there and the cost of living and, and housing especially is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you support that kind of approach where you you remove some of those setback restrictions and you know the size of the yard, size of the lot restrictions and kind of go with that smaller, little bit higher density uh, approach? I do. I think that's a really good idea. Um, it's, it's kind of the, the difference between people living in the Walmart parking lot in an RV 
or in their car or just being homeless on the street versus living in a small home. And, and this is, I mean, there, this is being happening nationwide. There's a movement towards smaller homes for people right. who that's more appropriate for. Um, I, I read uh, Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden. I, I loved it. And uh, it's, it's always been funny to me that it's called Walden Pond because it's huge. It's like you can water ski on yeah. it. I, I visited it when I was there. Um, but, but yeah, so like, I don't know. It seems like in real estate, people always want to have sort of like with like. So you sort of group people together with, with different people who have similar means and want similar things. Um, but I don't know that that really has to be so strict that, you know, that we have to have, you know, all in this neighborhood, it all has to be young families or older people whose, whose children have moved away. I, I think it's okay to have some smaller houses and some bigger houses. But the neighborhood I, I live in has some of that. We've, we've got some, we've got, we've got some, some, uh, uh, manufactured homes down at the end of the end and and some different things but it's it, it, that's a good thing we really need to to do that to, because it's otherwise you ha you have to raise the minimum wage to a point where the businesses around town would really have a hard time with it and they're already struggling to find employees especially in the service sector yeah. um, you talk to some of the restaurant owners and, and they can't find servers you mm. know they just nobody can afford to live here and work for those wages and if they raise the wages they have to raise their prices and then that affects everybody that's you know that's their concern um there are some those in the community who would like to see you know we have a lot of you know especially on on first and second uh east and west we have a lot of the smaller homes 750 to you know 950 square foot homes that are older you know 40s 50s 60s mm -hmm. um and they would like to see those preserved um, and not allow people to come in buy one of those scrape it and and build a, a much larger house on that lot hmm. are you more toward letting people do what they want to do with their property or are you more toward trying to protect that feel in, in, of cedar city well i don't know i mean there 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 are places where you look at it and you say that is really worth preserving i, I think about what they did to grand central station in new york city that that was a tragedy yeah. because it was a work of art um it, it should have been preserved but it wasn't um and there are other places where it's kind of iffy. I mean, it's it's an older home, maybe, but it's but it's not. Um, there's nothing particularly distinguishing about it. I, 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 the eastern part of town, the east side over kind of by East Elementary, there I've noticed over the years has really wide streets, and which is wonderful. But yeah. little tiny homes because it was built back when that's what people could afford. Um, and so, my view is if somebody wants to come in and build a larger house on that lot, I'm okay with it. The streets are big enough that I mean. There's, it's incongruous to me that people would have little tiny houses on such large lots in, in an area that has that's got so much space. So I found out today one of the reasons for those long lots uh -huh. was septic systems. Oh. They had to have a leach field. Oh, yeah. And so now we're working off of regulations that were created before the sewer system was put in place. And, and we have to comply uh. with these ordinances that nobody needs that anymore because they're all in the public sewer system. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things sometimes are a little slow to catch up. It's just... Yeah. I love doing these interviews because I learn all these new things that I didn't know, and it's just great. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I, the house I grew up in had a septic system. 
In fact, they built the house, and then they went to put in the septic and, and discovered that there was solid lava rock about eight feet down. Oh, man, that's a great leach field right there. <laughs> so so they, they were like, well, can we blast? We're like, no, we've already built the house. We can't blast. Yeah. And so they built it and put it on top of the rock, and then eventually it sank, and a corner broke off. And so we had to, oh. had to fix it. It was terrible. Well, speaking of sewage, um, we have uh, about a billion gallons of water that gets expressed from our sewage treatment plant in the form of type 2 effluent, mm. or as some people refer to it, poo water. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, that's all going, because of the agreements of, of when it was built, but that's all going pretty much to one place. And in the summertime, it's being used pretty responsibly. In the wintertime, it's just going out in the field and, and evaporating. It's not in a kind of soil that would allow it to recharge through this you know, trillion, billion uh, ton filter uh, into the aquifer. So there has been talk about piping that or to create an infrastructure system to let that secondary water be used by agriculture so that they're not drawing from the aquifer. So mm -hmm. it's an encouragement to them to buy this water cheaper uh -huh. than the water that they would draw from the aquifer. Mm -hmm. Where do you, what are your thoughts on that? The other option is to build a hundred million dollar water treatment plant to create type one affluent and you can drink that. Yeah. Um, so where, where would your thoughts be on that? I think for the short term, and we're talking short term is like, you know, the next couple of decades or so, two or three, I, I think that's a good idea. I think I think allowing the, the farmers to use that if it if it's appropriate for what they're growing and, and then, you know, not drawing from the aquifer, that makes total sense. Um, I, th I think for, for the long term, um, Cedar City historically has grown 30 to 40 percent per decade on average, and, and there's no reason to think that that won't continue. And the reason I say that is because we have a university, and yep. nationwide micropolitan areas with a university are growing. They, they will keep growing, as far as we know. Um, but so as Cedar gets bigger, its its purchasing power will go up, and and there is a point when the it, $100 million um, well, might be expensive, but it wouldn't be out of the reach of the city. And, I, and you know, when I say that, I'm talking about maybe 50, 60, 70 years in the future. It's, it's definitely out there. But I, I think for, for the city, long term, the, really the future is recycling water. However, that's done. There, there are different ways to do it. But swapping, you know, swapping the water, you know, like you said, allowing the, the farmers to use it for, for theirs so they don't draw from the aquifer, I think that's a great thing for the short term. Yeah, I said earlier today that, you know, in 100 years, we'll all be drinking the poo water. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> it's going to get to that point. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, so the city's just bought $14 million worth of water rights. Uh -huh. And those water rights are, you know, in the borough Newcastle area. They're not as far as the Wawa water, or the Pine Valley water, but we still have to convey that water from there to here. Mm -hmm. And that's going to involve infrastructure as well. Um, the other thing though we have to look at is, you know, just because you have a right to water on paper, if you drill a well and it's dry, it doesn't matter what it says on the paper so how do you how do you see yourself on the council approaching those issues as you uh, if you were to get elected well the the water thing is interesting because there's really two parts to it there's the water rights issue and there's the water availability issue so as if if we keep pumping and we keep using as much as we're using eventually the water levels will go down so far that we won't be able to use them. In other words, the the water rights with a lower priority, the state will say you can't use that. Right. You own the right, but you can't use it. Um, what we've seen in other places in the country is that when you get down to the bottom of those wells, down to the dregs, what, there's a lot of arsenic. 
And so it's, um, it's kind of interesting that I grew up out in the country. We didn't have city water. We had a well, and it was a deep one. Um, through, in fact, the, the whole thing was through solid rock except for the first eight feet. I can't remember the exact number, but it was pretty deep. And I, we, uh, we learned years later that it actually has higher levels of arsenic than EPA allows, but lower than what FDA does. So it would kill small frogs, but it shouldn't hurt humans. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of interesting. But that, that's what happens. So when you get down to that level, even if you still have rights that are active, and I don't know how the, the state hydrological um, department would deal with that, but you might not be able to use it without putting it through um, reverse, reverse osmosis, you know, a full, yeah. full-blown water treatment. Um, so it really, you know, we, we, we can buy the water rights. Um, so, like, currently we're in the situation where we've got farmers who own water rights. And they're great. They're using their water rights. They're they're doing their business. That that's wonderful. But eventually, the the city will get big enough, and its buying power will get big enough that it will be able to buy those out. And and I mean legally on the market, and the farmers would happily give them up because the amount they'd be offered would be more than enough. And I think that's the right way to do it. We should. I don't think we should use them in a domain to take away water rights from the, from those. Well, we're not, but what we're going to do is if you want to develop here, you have to bring your own water rights or yeah. you, you pay through the teeth uh-huh. for the, the water rights if, you, if you're unable to attain, obtain them. Yeah. So again, there's another barrier, right? We're going to raise the prices of all the housing because they have to buy or, you know, find these water rights and bring them with them. Uh-huh. And that brings down the inventory and that makes it the price of the current inventory higher and, and more difficult for people to live in. And yeah. where do we find that balance? Well, and that's that's kind of the, I mean, we talked about that a little bit earlier is with, you know, the, should the city acquire them? Should the, should the developers do it? And that, again, that's a problem. Um, I, one thing I want to hit really quick, though, before we get back into that is that I, I, you've probably seen in the news, there's a lot of, there are a lot of um, companies in China and in Saudi Arabia that are importing hay from yes. the Southwest. And so the, a lot of the, the headlines said the Southwest is exporting its water to Saudi Arabia, which is basically true. Yeah. And so the, the concern I have with that situation is that, is that those concerns, whether they be government or, or private corporations in those places, China, Saudi Arabia, um, is that they are in a position where they may not sell, period, you know, no matter what the price. And I, I think that that's problematic. That is the only situation where I would support the use of eminent domain in acquiring water rights is if it's a foreign corporation and, and they're, they don't want to give it up. That's the only one. But you're right. It's true. And, and it, it really comes down to the, the market. I mean, if, if, the, if the person, whether it be a farmer or someone else who owns those water rights, doesn't want to give them up until the price gets to $5 million or $10 million, it it's expensive. And, and that's, that's part of why we need to conserve water is because we can use lower priority water rights if the water's there, if the state hydrological department will let us use them. And so we, we need to keep the aquifer level to a level where we can use the lower priority water rights. If we don't, then those start getting canceled. Uh, we're, we're not allowed to use them. Um, so like, you know, right now I, I was in council meeting once and we, we actually had a, a farmer come in and talk about the water and he described the amount of water that's used on a typical lawn in Cedar City. And his, his comment was, you could grow rice with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's kind of crazy. So I, I really think what the city needs to begin encouraging people to conserve water. I was just doing some research the other day on, on different, uh, 
different options. In fact, it was my my, my daughter was uh, she was they've been watching The Hobbit recently, you know, the movie, and I think she was looking up uh, Hobbit lawns, and apparently they've got these little round pavers, little round stepping stones uh-huh. with um, clover around them, and so she found a video on YouTube about clover lawns, and how you don't have to mow them. Um, they look beautiful, um, and they use a lot less water than grass does. And so I, and so I, seeing that, I went and looked up a bunch of others, and there are a whole bunch of different plants that you can grow that are low. You don't have to mow them, or maybe only twice. Would they do well in an arid environment like this? Absolutely. Wow. There, some of them will. Yeah, there, there are several that will do well. I, sedum is one, uh, and there, there were, there were a few others that do well too. In fact. Uh, this year, I'm planning on taking a strip out of my front lawn. There's a little section there, and I want to where we normally walk across it. I want to put some stepping stones and kind of segregate that off from the from the grass and put sedum there and see how it does. I want to just try it myself and see how it goes Be- because I-, I think that could work. I think there's a lot of things we could do. And you know what? My right knee is terrible. I I'm gonna have to get a knee replacement at some point. And every time I mow the lawn, it aches, and I think yep. you know what. This is not good. I need something that I, where I don't have to mow. So there's a there's a product that was invented by a Cedar City man, in fact, the mayor's son. And it's you've seen the Roombas that go around your house and vacuum. Well, it's a lawnmower version of that called the Moro. Oh. And Mike Green invented this thing, and it, really, yeah, you can get a Moro for your lawn. I I hate lawns myself. I just they're not my thing. I like the rock. I like. I'm thinking about getting some of those little cactuses that look like dinosaur toes. Oh. You ever see those things? They're, they're just adorable. You get them in from Israel, oh. and uh, just making a whole front lawn of just dinosaur toe cactuses. I don't even know what their actual name is, but they just are cute, adorable little things. That's great. <laughs> I've, I've said for a long time that I, I front lawns are just worthless to me. Yeah. I mean, it's just window dressing. You put so much effort into it, and it's just for looks. So if I could put something down there that I don't have to mow and I don't have to water very much, that's great. Now, the back lawn, I think it's nice to have a place where you can go and, and run around and play and, and yeah. lay on it. You know, I mean, some of the things I've talked about, you could do that with as well. But sedum is a little prickly. I don't think it's I a little prickly. want to do that with sedum. But, but you know, for back lawns, keep your back lawn. Mow it, whatever you want. But make the front lawn something else, something that works, you know, in this environment. We've got a whole bunch of Kentucky bluegrass here. We don't live in Kentucky. Yeah. And, and so we really need to kind of sort of wake up and realize that we live in a desert and maybe we, we should we to embrace that a little bit. I'd like to see people growing vegetables in their front yards because you go to the farmer's market and there's no vegetables. Oh. It's like, what the heck? What kind of a farmer's market is this if there's no vegetables? <laughs> or what's there is kind of scraggly looking. At it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like, wow. Yeah. No, if people want to use their front lawn for uh, for vegetables, that's wonderful. You can do some really interesting things with it. But them. I don't think you can by ordinance. Oh, so really? I don't oh. believe so. Sheesh, I should know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, and that, that's the thing. Like, when, when pe- I, from time to time I hear somebody got fined because their front lawn wasn't done right, and I think that's the only thing the city has in place right now. And it's encouraging people to do grass lawns yeah. because they don't know of anything else. I, I, what I would like to see is the city sponsoring like fairs, you know, like xeriscaping fairs and uh, other options. Uh, there's zero, zero, and and then all these other things. We, we ought to have you know, like it ought to, there ought to be monthly newsletters. There should be, you know, you can call this number and find out how to do this. They, and there is a program the state just instituted where they'll pay you a dollar fifty a square foot to tear up your lawn and and put something else in rock or. 
and up to fifty thousand dollars, I think, is is what it is. So that wow. just just came out, and and I'm actually look, I'm the president of my HOA, and we're looking at tearing up all our lawns and replacing rock. Oh, I'm going to look that before up. before this came out. We were looking at that, and so now I'm going, hey, maybe we can actually afford to do this. Yeah, it's that that's great. Thanks for telling me. I didn't yeah. realize that. Um, rock is kind of tough. I mean, that, that's zero scape, so there's just nothing there except for rock. I mean, the, the we're rec- paying like nineteen hundred dollars a month to water these lawns. Oh, wow. And so it's just stupid to us. You know, we, yeah. we need a new parking area, and why are we paying $1,900 to water lawns nobody uses? Yeah. You know, it's, so. Cedar's kind of an interesting place because when you put down rock, you have to put a good weed barrier in Yeah. It because we get enough water in the winter that weeds will come up. The first, well, the house we moved out to in Three Peaks, we lived in, the, in some, some duplexes, multiplex housing up in Cobble Creek when we first moved here for about six months. When we moved to Three Peaks, I got out there and started looking around, and I didn't realize. I walked out onto the lawn, and, and it looked just like, you know, it was kind of weeds or whatever. I mean, it was just, you know, cheat grass. I stuck a shovel into it and realized there was about five inches of pea gravel, and the weeds had grown up through it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so that was a huge problem. And when we moved to the house we're currently in, there was a section in the back that had been like a, it was like a drive through, it was like a, a driveway kind of for the, Apparently, the, one of the developers of the neighborhood lived there, and so we had this in back with a gate and everything. When the when the lot next to us didn't have anything in it, so it was the same thing, and it was a terrible, terrible thing to take that out. So, if you do that, you really need to put multiple layers of of this down, and then and then periodically check it to see if you need to change it. Yeah. But it's like it's easier to change if you've got a thin layer than it is if you've got a thick layer. And I've heard you got to do the pre-emergent right. every year and, and oh, all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I don't like the idea of putting chemicals into yeah, the, yeah, poisons. that's all going to go into the water supply too. Right. So tied to housing uh-huh. is we've had quite an increase. Uh, one of the groups that I've had in the studio is, is uh, Iron County Care and Share. Mm. Um, we've had quite an increase in the homeless population. And in mm. fact, if you go up the canyons, uh, I mean, it's homeless camps all over the place up there and trash and uh-huh. and all of that. But uh, the other side of, you know, it's trash in the canyons, but there's, there's people, mm-hmm. people who don't have a place to live. Um, and in the wintertime, that can be fatal. Oh, yeah. um, what do you see the city's role as in helping to fix that homelessness problem and deal with that homelessness? Because one of the things we don't have, we don't have um, you know, drug treatment facilities. We don't have good mental health facilities. We're really lacking in some of that infrastructure. Mm. What do you see as, as the city's role in, in helping with that situation? I think the first thing to say is that Cedar can't do it alone. Um, it, this is really, it's really a state and ultimately nationwide effort um, because homeless people move from place to place. If they hear there's something better here, they'll move there. And homeless people move a lot. Sometimes they, sometimes they actually get bussed from where they're at to where they have relatives by local organizations that can do that. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. But, you know, I mean, it's better to put somebody in an area where they, where they might have natural assistance from relatives and such. But it's but, you know, if if, if Cedar had a, a really awesome program, uh, we might get a lot of people here. And, and that's the fear that's so I've just aired it. That's the fear that everybody has is that we will become the dumping ground for homeless people and we'll all have to pay. for. You don't it. want to be a magnet. Right. And, and so I, I so I think the first thing is to overcome that fear is to say, OK, you know what? We know this could happen potentially in a terrible situation, 
but we're, we're going to sort of ignore that and we're going to start doing the right thing and, and, and then encourage other municipalities and, and the state and other states to do it as well. Um, so the, the first thing is, like you said, the smaller housing, making housing more affordable. Um, it's, I, I just, again, I, I think there's, um, it's better to have someone who has a low income in a small house than on the street or in an RV or in their car. It, it's more orderly, it's better, and it makes for a better community. Um, regarding drug treatment, again, again, it's a state and nationwide problem, but when someone has a drug problem, they, they go through these stages where, you know, they, first they're able to support their habit, and then, but then eventually they can't, it gets too expensive, and then it's found out that they're on drugs, and they lose their job, and then, you know, their family tries to help them, and then the family says, look, we can't help you anymore. It's, it's a terribly difficult, heavy problem to deal with. Right. And, and with the way drug treatment works with people is that sometimes it doesn't work at first. Sometimes it's the second or the third or the fourth. People get to the point where they, have, they hit rock bottom. And by the time they hit rock bottom, typically, they have no resources and no one's willing to help them. And so, and, and again, this is probably, this is really more of a national conversation, but I, it's people who have a drug problem need to be able to get drug treatment without having to pay for it. And, that, and that's and I, I know people say, well, you're giving it away. They won't appreciate it if you give it away. But they're in a position where it that doesn't even matter. Yeah. It's that they need help. And, and I think the cost out, or, you know, the, the benefit outweighs the cost mm -hmm. because of, of what would the cost to society of them continuing without treatment. Yeah. Is so high. And 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 so I, I think I think there are smart ways to do drug treatment in ways that aren't so terribly expensive. We have a lot of, of companies that are exploiting this situation by trying to to come up with these you know in, uh, what do they call them you know or like uh, residential treatment programs and all this stuff that that are really just a, a ploy to get money. I mean that's yeah. it's and a lot of them are out and out scams. So um, that's that's I think how how we need to do that and. That solves a lot of other problems too. When we solve the drug problem, we also solve a lot of the problems south of the border. We, you know, we you take the air out of the sales of the drug cartels, and then we we don't have this issue with tons of people wanting to come to to immigrate here illegally because they. No, the cartels are getting out of the drug business anyway. They're they're moving into human trafficking. Oh, it's, oh, then that's awful. That's and horrible. And that just it's it's a bigger business than professional sports. Yeah, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. So, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to to get in? We got about six minutes left, and I want to give you some opportunity to to bring up anything that you wanted to bring up, and also give people information on how to contact you, uh, to be able to connect with you, to send you a check, pick up a yard sign, and all that good stuff. Um, I think the the first thing is probably economic development. So, because we're a micropolitan area and we have a university, every year we have students who graduate and need jobs. And as a college graduate myself, I know that when I graduated, I didn't want to have to move somewhere else because I didn't know where jobs were and I just wanted to stay in the area, you know? I wanted to be able to go somewhere that was close. And, and I did, you know, I worked in, in, in the Provo area in a few different jobs after I graduated. But we have an opportunity to keep those graduates here if we have the, the right opportunities for them. And so I, I think the, the city really ought to look into economic development, partnering with the university. Um, you know, and sometimes it just takes, it's a little nudge. Maybe it's a little bit of an investment here or a little bit there. Sometimes it's just seed money. It doesn't, doesn't have to be expensive. It's just 
somebody looking at the situation going, oh, they're doing that here. Maybe we should do that here too. You know, that's, it's just, it's like that. And, and the great thing about that is we've got all this talent. We've got all these people who we can have, um, we can have uh, really awesome companies in, in this place that will provide money, bringing money in from the outside that will make the, the economy really vibrant. I look at a state like, like Massachusetts and they, they have one of the most vibrant economies in the whole nation. It's because there are so many universities. Yeah. They're just like, I mean, it's... it's well, they got a big one there too that's, you know, pretty prominent. Well, <laughs> that's true. And and that's, I mean, our, our mission office was actually right next to Harvard. It was yeah. just right there. But but there's, there's a whole ton of them. There's like, in, just in Boston itself, there are 20 universities. Yeah. If I remember correctly, and and the whole the whole state has even more. So it's education is really where it's at. I, I think if we can if we can get people to to stay and contribute to the economy, it, it'll help everybody. Well, tell us how to get in touch with you. Um, so I, probably the easiest way right now is is my uh, my email address Mumford Mumford. That's my last name twice at Netscape.net. Netscape. Yeah, it's an old address. Wow. So they got bought by AOL, but I still have the Netscape address. Um, and, and my last name is spelled M-U-M-F-O-R-D. We'll print that on the screen, too. So. That's good. Yeah, I, I get mixed up with the, with the Munfords a lot. I, I know some of them. They're, they're, they're good people. But, but I, I get mixed up, and people get mixed up. Uh, and for a while, my, my kids' me- medical records were tied to a Mark Munford who lives in town. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's just it's interesting. I've thought about bringing a little sign with, you know, have the, have the right spelling on it. So yeah, that's that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I, I can get my phone number too, Eric code 435-559-3784. Um, um, so feel free to call or text me. I'm, I'm happy to talk. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's Mark Munford, candidate for city council. Mumford. Mumford. Mum is the word. <laughs> so, and he will be uh, with the other candidates on Monday at the uh, Huntsman Conference Center on SUU's campus at 5.30 p.m. for a meet and greet, 6.30 p.m. for a candidate forum. Um, we don't have debates in Cedar City. We just have forums. I'm, I'm an old-time Washington, D.C. Uh, political uh advocate and activist and I, I like a good real debate but we don't have those in cedar city um so it's a candidate forum and you can go and meet all of the candidates who will be there it's sponsored by the michael o levitt center for politics and uh, communities or center for government and community service and uh, I, I will be there filming it so we'll have that up on uh, the internet as well afterward um and i think they live stream that as well but my my video cameras are way better than theirs so um i get better footage so uh this has been mark mumford uh in our interviews with uh candidates for cedar city council and these count these uh, interviews are sponsored by the southern utah citizens for ethical government and cedar city politics facebook page and they're also on the what's happening what's really happening in southern utah uh facebook group um so I'm going to take this opportunity while I have you here to make a little bit of a shameless pitch. I have a nonprofit called the Friends of the Iron County Sheriff that was started last year. And because of your generosity in this community, we were able to raise $30,000 to purchase additional mental health care for our first responders in, uh, as a result of the hate murders that occurred at the beginning of this year. Uh, we were able to purchase over 100 additional hours of mental health care for our first responders. Well, we've begun our next campaign and we need your help. 
the sheriff has identified a need that the county doesn't have the funds for right now, and that is for a canine that is trained to find explosives and firearms. Uh, that will cost about $20,000 to purchase the, the canine, get him trained and outfitted. And we uh, have launched Operation Woof. And you can go to our website, friendsoficsheriff.org, to uh, contribute to that. And we hope that you would find it in your heart to help us bring that resource to our community. Right now, when we have a threat of a bomb or a gun in our schools, we have to wait hours for either the state or St. George to be able to get that resource here, to get one of those canines here. Uh, and those hours could potentially lead to tragedy. So having that resource locally, um, the, the canine would also be trained to track and do all the other things, bite and, and all the other things that canines do. But rather than finding drugs, this one would be able to find bombs and explosives and, and firearms. So that's friendsoficsheriff.org. Sorry, that's the timer right there. Friendsoficsheriff.org. Uh, and click on the Operation Woof icon, and you can get that donation. We'll get that resource to our community. This has been Dan Kidder with uh, What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast. And we thank you for checking in, and we'll see you on the next one. We're clear. <laughs>